This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. Iran is in turmoil right now due to protests by its citizens in cities across the country. They are concerned with the government and the path that it is taking uh, people. Cost of living is sharply on the rise, yet more and more people are not able to make a decent wage. There is also the political climate as well. The Iranian government blames its enemies for causing this uprising. Still, the U.S. has come out in support of Iran's citizens. To discuss the latest, we are joined here in studio by Wharton Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics, Philip Nichols. Also joined on the phone by Nadir Habibi, who is Professor of Practice in Economics of the Middle East at Brandeis University. And also joining us is Javad Saleh Isfahani, who is Professor of Economics at Virginia Tech, as well as a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Phil, great seeing you again. Happy New Year. Thanks Always for good to see you, Dan. Thank you. Nadir, Javad, great to have you with us today. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Happy New Year. Thank you. Uh, Nadir and Javad, I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, let's just get your reaction to what is going on there. Nadir, I'll stop with you. start with you. Yes. Okay. Well, um, I think uh, the um, protests that started about seven days ago have caught everyone uh, with a big surprise, especially both factions within the ruling elite. But um, uh, over time, the protests have evolved from... Um, grievances about economic conditions to broader demands for political freedom and uh, political change, as we have seen. Um, so um, it's, um, I'm, we're all waiting to see how this will evolve over time, and I'll be happy to address any specifics. Javad? Yeah, I, uh, as Nader said, uh, this, uh, these uprisings took uh, everyone by surprise, although Iran is not New to demonstrations, uh, there are almost weekly demonstrations against banking crisis, against prices. But this one, uh, the way it spread to smaller cities, uh, is new. And I think, uh, in some sense, it's not a surprise when you look back. Iranians have been uh, under sanctions and uh, bad economic management for several years. So their standard of living has been declining. And uh, unemployment is very high, so there is a, uh, if you like, a, a very inviting bed for this kind of uh, unrest. So once you get a little spark, it, 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 it's no surprise that it spreads uh, fast and wide. Phil? Yeah, uh, th- th- it did catch everyone by surprise. Perhaps it shouldn't have, given the conditions in Iran. Uh, it is could be viewed as part of a global uh, outrage by the people who have been disaffected by the economic downturn since 2007-2008, but it has its own unique Iranian aspect to it. The the, the Iranian government, uh, Javad, has come out and they are blaming their enemies for this. (laughs) A lot of people are seeing this as a flat-out excuse. How do you see it? Well, in some sense, I think they're right, because uh, there have been so much threats against the Islamic Republic uh, for many years from the United States, Israel, Saudi Arabia. You know, Saudi Arabians came out very uh, clearly saying they would like to take this 
tensions inside Iran. So I'd be surprised if they're not doing anything. Uh, however, given the strength of the economic grievances, uh, I, I think it would be foolish uh, to attribute this entire thing to foreign meddling. Uh, there's obviously good reasons for people to be very unhappy. Uh, on top of economic issues, Iran is unique in some sense because it has a lot of social restrictions uh, for young people that makes young people's lives uh, very difficult. Nadir? Yes. Um, what we're observing in the past couple of days is that there is a division of opinion within the government, and uh, that is interesting because the conservatives uh, have uh, blamed the um, foreign elements external forces, but we are beginning to see some acknowledgement by some politicians, some people within the regime uh, about the domestic concerns, uh, giving some legitimacy to the grievances about economic conditions, although not much comment about demands for uh, political freedoms or political change. Um, when we look at the response of domestic media, uh, that are beginning to uh, slowly comment on this issue. It's clear that um, although some groups are trying to use this for factional uh, competition, but uh, we are beginning to see some people acknowledging the uh, economic policies and the shortcomings and short-sightedness of uh, politicians in the past few years. Uh, for example, the um, Sanctions have been over for two years, but it has not um, um, led to a significant material improvement for large factions in the society. That, that's a very interesting comment. Um, the shorthand that the sanctions have been over kind of belies the complexity of the vast number of remaining sanctions. Right. The sanctions that were lifted were the sanctions regarding the nuclear policy, but the preceding two layers of sanctions still exist, particularly the U.S. sanctions on banking, which extraordinarily complicates any foreign investment into Iran. And, and as we see from a lot of situations, if you don't have the, the access to the banking, your ability to grow is just almost cut. It's like cutting the legs out from underneath somebody. And, and the example of Total, which is one of the heavy foreign investors into Iran is a great example. They've turned to Chinese, <laughs> to Chinese banks, which yeah. no one turns to, uh, and they've started the pro they they they've got this very delicate process of trying to run payments through Chinese banks. That's an extraordinarily complicated way to try to do foreign investment, and that's the kind of environment that Iran still has, even though most people look to the lifting of the nuclear sanctions as this great watershed event. Is, is there a, Nadir, is there a, a shifting of, of mindset that, that could possibly be there down the road for Iran and for the government to look at different ways and different ideas to be able to try and, and find that growth and to be able to cut into some of the unemployment issues that are there for, for young adults right now? Uh, well, um, there is, definitely there are many uh, ideas being proposed 
But one of the weaknesses of Iran in terms of governance is that there are two factions, and whenever one faction is ruling, the other faction tries to undermine it and weaken it by all kinds of uh, instruments that are available to them. And we see this uh, continuing uh, and has continued even after the sanctions were lifted. Uh, yes, Iran has an opportunity to improve its economic conditions despite the ongoing um, unilateral sanctions. You have to keep in mind that the sanctions, the multinational and international sanctions that were imposed on Iran during 2013 and 2014 and 2015 were very, very severe. The um, oil export was interrupted. The banking system was completely shut, shut off from the rest of the world. Um, those critical sanctions have been lifted. Yes, there are unilateral U.S. sanctions, but when we look at the performance of Iran in terms of re-engagement with the global economy, in terms of exports and imports, we see that um, those very severe sanctions are no longer there, and Iran has been able to take advantage of this new opportunity, for example, by increasing its oil exports to Europe, by increasing uh, trade with Europe, um, with Asia. And uh, so there is somehow a return to the normal situations that uh, prevailed before the sanctions, before the um, multilateral sanctions, which of course means it was a period of domestic poor governance and uh, unilateral U.S. pressures. The pressure on Total is real. It is uh, causing Total to perhaps have a change of mind about cooperation with Iran's um, gas, natural gas development. But those uh, concerns were also present before 2013. Phil? I, I think that's a fair observation. Uh, but if you look at Iran's foreign investment foreign investment into Iran, I should say, in the two years following the lifting of the nuclear sanctions, it, it's, you know, Iran has attracted about $25 billion, just short of $25 billion in foreign investment, which is substantially below – and it's high for MENA, but it's substantially below where Iran should be given the size of its economy. Mm -hmm. And most foreign investors who look into Iran, and many, many firms have – come back saying that the environment in Iran is just too unpredictable, partially because of the difficulty in using dollar-based banking in Iran, but also partially, as was just mentioned, because of the inept local government and the severe amounts of corruption. It's a really difficult environment to get into, regardless of any sanctions. Jabat? Yeah. Actually, there are two types of sanctions, if you like. The sanctions that prevent Iranians from trading are pretty much gone, maybe maybe 80% gone. Uh, but the sanctions that prevent foreign investment, as Phil was saying, are still there because foreign investment is a very uh, difficult thing. You know, it's a future-oriented. People have to bet on uh, conditions 10 years from now. When you have a U.S. president uh, who's threatening all sorts of things against Iran, they are easily intimidated. Maybe large ones like Total can hang in there, but I think smaller investors who might have been more helpful in terms of creating jobs. Remember that energy sector is very capital intensive, does not create the kind of jobs that people in small cities who are now protesting 
uh, are, are likely to get. Uh, what Iran really needs is an internal strategy. Uh, there is enough domestic resources to create more jobs. I'm not saying that unemployment can be reduced to 5% like in the U.S., uh, but uh, uh, you know, when you have a banking crisis as severe as Iran's, uh, we haven't mentioned that yet, but interest rates in Iran are probably one of the highest in the world. And some of the money that's coming in is really coming to take advantage of that because the exchange rate has been fairly stable. Interest rates uh, exceed the rate of inflation by 5 to 10 percent. Uh, and the banks are not lending money to private sector. So that's the internal problem. And the banking sector in Iran has another problem, which is it's not really up to snuff with you, uh, global regulations against money laundering. They're trying to do these, all these things, uh, but at a very slow pace. I am not in a position to say if it, can, it could have been done faster, but that sort of stuff takes time. So jobs uh, m- would come, I'm sure, if uh, this, even at this slow pace, things uh, stayed and continued for four or five years, but they're not coming in, in a year or two. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. In studio with Philip Nichols here at the Wharton School, uh, on the phone with Nadir Habibi of Brandeis University and Javad Salehi Isfahani of Virginia Tech University. Your comments at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio111, B-I-Z Radio 111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Javad, I, I've seen a, a variety of stories in the last couple of days that have talked about the aspect of the fact that millennials are the ones that are that are driving a lot of these protests right now. Uh, one, how much do you think millennials are driving it? And two, what does that say about the potential future of Iran down the road? Well, uh, the millennials, if you like, the age group 20 to 29, the youth, bear the brunt of the unemployment. Most people have under, over 30 have jobs in Iran. The unemployment rate for them is about 5%. But when you look at young people, especially young women, unemployment rates are very high. For women, it's over 40%. For young men, it's over 20%. So, uh, and th- this is not the kind of unemployment that's been there for like a year or two because of recession. This is something that has been going on for like a decade. And people elected Rouhani thinking that he can actually deal with these problems. The same hopes they had for Mir Hussein Mousavi in 2009, uh, who was not elected, who, who lost to Ahmadinejad yeah. in a, that controversial election. So in 2013, when they elected Rouhani, they thought they, it's their undoing Ahmadinejad. Then they re-elected him again in t- 2017, and uh, they're still waiting for something to happen. And now... Uh, Rouhani is coming and saying, well, no, you, we have a banking crisis. The sanctions are still high. We have problems with the opposition in Iran, the uh, other factions, the conservatives. And what are they supposed to think? How are they going to plan their lives? So I think for young people, this is a very, very difficult situation. It may not be that more, much more difficult than Egypt or other Middle Eastern countries, right. but it is a very uh, situation ripe with uh, unrest. Phil? I that's a wonderful and, and succinct um, description. The reference to Egypt is interesting because one can draw parallels to the the, the 
um, young people in Egypt, the social contract was broken. They didn't have employment. They didn't have the, the benefits, which Iran is running out of money to fund. But one looks at what happened to Egypt. The young people stood up. They said, we want economic and social liberalization. Yeah. And they were crushed. The you know we we might particularly on this side of the ocean place too much emphasis on differences between the ruling factions, but the truth of the matter is that there is a massive amount of corruption on both sides, and it's difficult to put too much faith into the elite in the short run, and and Egypt is a wonderful example of that. The other part to it, uh, Javad, is the fact that uh, seemingly from the reporting, you're in a time right now where uh, a lot of people have decided to uh, to leave the villages and try and go to the bigger cities for a variety of reasons. One being the potential of work, but two, uh, the access to the Internet and, and obviously the understanding that the Internet plays a, a, a big role in business right now. Yes, the Internet has been playing a big role. Telegram, which is the main social media that Iranian youth use, millions of them, was instrumental in triggering these uh, uh, unrest. Uh, the one other factor, I don't know exactly how important it is, but Iran has been in a very severe drought. And drought hurts agriculture and rural areas much more severely than urban areas. Uh, Iran's agriculture that used to grow by 5-6% per year, in the last year or so, it's been like 0.2%, very, very slow growth. And uh, this is something that also happened in Syria. Villagers not expecting an improvement in the weather conditions, because Iran is now in that area where drought is going to become much more severe with global warming, they are probably starting moving to cities. But then in the cities, the conditions aren't all that much better. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So, so Nadir, what is, in your mind, the political process here to try and, and find some sort of resolution to this? I mean, we're talking about a time now where you've had hundreds arrested, you've had more than 20, at last count, uh, killed. Uh, what, yeah. what is the solution in your mind? Um, well, um, I think what I think is the solution is not really as important as what how the situation would evolve and what kind of solution is likely to emerge given the current political conditions and distribution of political forces. So far, no one has, in my opinion, offered a significant either solution to economic problems or called for any kind of political reform. Uh, and that is the key. Um, some uh, um, more moderate factions, such as Rouhani himself, President Rouhani, yeah. have said that people have the right to protest. But how will those protests translate into change in public policy is not clear, because the political system in Iran is closed. Um, politicians are selected before they are elected by the people. Um, Key demands for substantial political or cultural change are uh, blocked. They have been blocked repeatedly for the past 40 years. So it is not clear how government will offer a um, substantial political solution. Another factor to keep in mind is that um, the resources are limited. As Javad mentioned, banking system is facing a severe crisis. 
Iran's uh, retirement fund. Government has tapped into it and, uh, and it's going to face a crisis in the coming months because of the shortage uh, of uh, funds to pay the um, retirement uh, salaries. Um, there, there is a question of resource and reallocation of resource. I think there might be some um, call for uh, perhaps um, economic reforms in the sense of redirecting resources to poor and marginalized small towns. Uh, what we observed in the past seven days is that the protests were more visible uh, in uh, small towns where unemployment and poverty are much worse than Tehran and large cities. So this might make the politicians aware of the neglect of these uh, smaller towns and um, low-income um, marginalized areas uh, in perhaps distant provinces from Tehran. Javad? Yes, I think that the point that uh, Philip made a, bit, uh, a few minutes ago about globalization, I think is very relevant. You know, Iran is highly globalized in some sense because it exports oil and imports a lot of stuff. And what is clear is that this kind of globalization doesn't really have a egalitarian uh, uh, distribution of uh, benefits uh, across the regions and across social classes. So there is something that's uh, gone wrong, and as uh, Nader mentioned, this government's probably going to pay more attention to small cities. Remember that the Islamic Republic has been a very successful poverty reduction enterprise. Not good at produce, producing jobs, right. but it's been good at taking care of the poor. It's a populist government. And I think they're going to fall back on populism. Rouhani made a big mistake in slashing the budget for the cash transfer program that was very popular with the poor. They were getting about, uh, you know, $20, $30 a month each person uh, in PPP purchasing power dollars. And he cut that. And he's going to channel that through the government machinery. And I don't think people like that. So he, And he also announced that he was going to raise gasoline prices by 50%. That's already been kind of shut down by the parliament. So that's populism for you. They will subsidize energy. They will probably start paying more cash. Uh, but getting jobs going, which is the long-term strategy that Rouhani actually favored correctly, is probably not in the offing uh, as a solution to this uh, crisis. Javad, I know you have to run. Thank you for your time today. Great to be with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Philip, your comments. I think the question of the youth is the one of the most fascinating questions. Uh, they're they seem to be, who knows, but they seem to be very disorganized. There's no charismatic or intellectual leader or leadership. Will that change? Um, right now, the best organized groups in Iran are the clerics, the conservative party, and particularly the international, uh, excuse me, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. Will they perpetuate themselves as the best organized group, or will something emerge from this huge disaffected body and if so what's going to evolve from that nadir so yeah. what what do you what do you think we are going to see in iran at least in the short term i mean obviously some of this stuff we're talking more longer term but what do you expect to see in the short term in 2018 specifically um, it's really hard to predict um, it is more likely that the government would be able to um, sort of quiet down these protests but not 100%. Uh, we don't know how even things might evolve in the next few days, just because 
past uh, 24 hours has been quiet. Um, I think the protests and the unrest would have an impact on political and economic decisions. Uh, a key factor, a key demand of most people in Iran is a change in Iran's foreign policy because they don't want to make so much sacrifice for the government's desire to confront the United States, to confront Israel. And we have seen this in their slogans in the past seven or eight days. We might see some factions within the government trying to have more influence on foreign policy, but again, there is no guarantee and we might just see the continuation of Iran's hardline foreign policy, which is going to pose both a military risk and economic risk and sanctions risk on the domestic economy. Phil, what do you expect to see? And also playing off of that, uh, get your reaction as well to the statements made by uh, U.S. U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley yesterday, basically, and, and obviously President Trump has done that as well, in support of the citizens of Iran. Um, those statements really don't help. Yeah. They've, they've just fuel the notion. I mean, you know, a very common misunderstanding is that Iranian youth want to be just like us. Uh, they, they, they don't. They want to be freer to be what they want to be. Right. The, the, the statements from the U.S. administration, we support them 100 percent, can be used as fuel for the Iranian administration saying this is foreign intervention, this is foreign idea, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. It, it, it just it doesn't help. I understand why they're doing it, and I, I, I agree. I support the Iranian students as well. But right. those statements are, are inconsequential or deleterious. And as for 2018, what do you think? I agree with uh, the other. <laughs> I agree. Who knows? I, I, the one thing I keep coming back to is that the administration in Iran is better organized. The Iranian National Guard is better – excuse me, Revolutionary Guard is better organized. The young people – aren't organized and there doesn't seem to be leadership merging out of them. I guess, Nadir, in wrapping up, uh, the question I have is, if part of this was uh, information that was leaked out and the fact that the military budget was boosted by 20%, obviously some of the financials coming out, if the military budget was boosted by 20%, that would seem, mm. in, in some people's minds, to say that other countries in the Middle East ought to, ought to be very wary at this point. Um, well, uh, the actual military budget might be much more than what you see in the budget right. uh, that is discussed in the parliament. Um, uh, obviously, Iran has tensions with um, Saudi Arabia, with Israel, and uh, uh, they, they have been worried about Iran's policy. So I'm not sure if the and 20% increase in budget would uh, make a difference in how worried they are. It, this has been a continuous policy of Iran to uh, support uh, Syria, for example. Uh, but uh, domestically, uh, the discussion of budget, I don't think, was the key factor that triggered these events. It began with an accident or perhaps a miscalculation in a large city in Mashhad. But the discontent that uh, the youth in these uh, impoverished towns and cities had felt for a long time, uh, it, it, that accident simply triggered them to bring that deep discontent to surface based on what we see the way people have behaved in the past seven days. 
it is much broader and uh, it's a concern with more long-term character of the society than just uh, um, recent developments with respect to budget allocation, in my opinion. Right. Great having you all with us, Philip. Great seeing you again. Thank Good you for coming in. Thank you. Nadir, thank, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 